Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. In some spots at about 700 feet below the surface of the Pacific Ocean are fields of potato-like lumps of rock, rich and valuable metals needed for things like electric vehicle batteries. Mining companies are working to start deep sea mining of those minerals. Conservation groups and dozens of indigenous groups are against it because they say it's harmful and would further disrupt the ocean's already fragile ecosystem. We'll hear more about deep sea mining after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Montana's legislature has passed a joint resolution recognizing the history of American Indian boarding schools and calling on the U.S. government to create a National Day of Remembrance. Montana Public Radio's Ellis Julin has more. Democratic Representative Tyson Running Wolf, a member of the Blackfeet Nation, sponsored the resolution in the House to officially acknowledge the trauma of boarding schools. They suffered physical, sexual, cultural, and spiritual abuse and neglect inexperienced treatment that in many cases constitute torture. For speaking their native language, many children never returned home and their fates have yet to be accounted for by the U.S. government. On the House floor last week, Running Wolf read off a list of 13 children from tribes across Montana who died at the Fort Shaw Industrial Indian School, an hour east of Helena. The school was opened between 1892 and 1910. The youngest to attend the boarding school was four years old. Senate Joint Resolution 6 passed with bipartisan support in both the House and Senate. In 2021, U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland launched an investigation into the country's past assimilation policies, which included the forced removal of Native American children from their families and tribes, placing them in Indian boarding schools. That ongoing investigation found 18 boarding schools operated in Montana. For National Native News, I'm Ellis Julin. Oregon Governor Tina Kotek's stance on gaming is hypocritical, says the Coquel Indian tribe. The criticism follows a letter she recently sent to the nine tribes across the state. KLCC's Brian Bull reports. In her letter, the governor writes that she does not favor the expansion of gaming, and therefore her policy maintains the status quo from previous administrations. Kotek then highlights the Coquel tribe's application for an electronic bingo facility in Medford and states her opposition to it. That stirred up strong feelings and resentment among some who point to a broad array of state-sponsored gambling in Oregon. John Ivey is vice chair of the Coquel Tribal Council. Truly, the Oregon Lottery is the biggest gaming institution in the state of Oregon. Maybe there's some political gamesmanship going on here when, in fact, it is frustrating and, quite frankly, somewhat hurtful to the tribe. The tribe says Kotek has no authority over the matter, and her stance perpetuates a mythical one-tribe, one-casino policy. The Coquel tribe has sought federal approval for a Medford gaming facility, which will be its second one outside the Mill Casino in North Bend, Oregon. Previous governors have not supported it, and the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua Indians, which runs the Seven Feathers Casino in Canyonville, has also opposed it. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. The governor's office did not respond to KLCC's request for comment. A man with strong ties to the western Alaska village of Gamble has been recognized for his commitment and dedication to Native culture and identity. Sam Schimmel is an Indigenous youth advocate who's Siberian Yupik and Kanaitsi. He'll soon graduate from law school. 
Schimmel's the inaugural recipient of the Autumn Apoc Ridley Award given by the Alaska Native Heritage Center in Anchorage. Schimmel's recognized for his work in supporting indigenous culture and ways of life. He says listening closely to elders as a youth as he grew up in Gamble and on the Kenai Peninsula was one of the most important touchstones of his life. They're the ones who instilled in me the, the promise of reciprocity that our communities are based on, the idea that our elders will teach us how to live and how to be in exchange. When we grow up, we will take care of our elders and we will pass down that knowledge onto our children so that they will take care of us. Schimmel received the award last week. The Heritage Center's inaugural community recognition includes an elder award, which was given to the late Dr. Oliver Levitt. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov IACB who support this program. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at AARP.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Indigenous and environmental groups are sounding the alarm over the new push to mine minerals off the bottom of the ocean. Major mining companies are urging regulators to allow the process to scoop metal-rich rock 200 meters below the surface of the ocean. The United Nations International Seabed Authority is the body that would issue permits. Dozens of indigenous groups, especially those in the South Pacific, are fighting the proposals, saying it will forever alter the fragile seabed ecosystem, endangering the life they depend on for subsistence and economic development. We'll hear some voices this hour about deep sea mining, but we also want to hear from you, our listener. Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Honolulu, Hawaii, is Dr. Brittany Kamai. She's an astrophysicist, a voyager, and ocean advocate. She's Kanaka Maoli. Brittany, welcome to Native America Calling. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you joining us bright and early there in Honolulu. Also joining us in Honolulu is Noah Paoa. He's a Ph.D. candidate focusing on sea level rise at the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology. He's Rapa Nui. Noah, welcome to Native America Calling as you as, as well. Hi, good morning. Thank you for the invite. You bet. Absolutely. Well, let's get this conversation started here, uh, learning more about deep sea mining. And obviously there is huge demand uh, for these types of minerals accessible by this technology, deep sea mining, but there are risks as well. Uh, Brittany, can you please start us off and explain what these risks are? 
Yeah, it's a big question, and I think that's the thing we don't know the answer to, is that the deep ocean is such a fragile, fragile ecosystem, and there's really no way for us to understand the incredible impact that we would have by mining minerals from the seabed. And we can even look to what's happened from land-based mining and how much of these other ripple effects that have been a negative impact on communities, everything from deforestation to impacts on the water quality. Those are just some things that happen on land. And we are nowhere near the level of understanding of what the impact will be when we go down to a place where it's such, it's such a slow-moving place. Like, all the creatures there move really slowly. They evolve over thousands of years, to, um, which, which happens much quicker on land. And we don't have any clue, just from a scientific standpoint, what would happen once we do this. So it's, too, we, it's way too premature, and if we even ever do this, to even think that we should start going down there and mining um, minerals. Okay. And Noah, Brittany explains that it takes uh, thousands of years for some of this life at, on the seabed to evolve. What do we know uh, about the ocean sea? But what is on the bottom of the sea? Um, so on the bottom of the sea, there is, um, in general, there um there is areas that are, um, most of it, right, is sediments that deposit over thousands of years. There are, like, um, the bodies of carbonate organisms that once they die, they start settling down and they deposit in the bottom of the ocean. Um, we have clay sediments that are either, like, dust blown or um, they are deposited by rivers. Those are uh, usually closer to the continents or in areas that are not as productive um, or areas where, where carbonate um, organisms um, uh, cannot, cannot live. And so we have uh, most of the oceans are um, sediment, uh, clay sediment deposits, and, and the other great majority is carbonate uh, sediment deposits. So these carbonate um, sediment, I mean, this is what a lot of these mining companies are after then, right? Are these sediments that they can use to, to make batteries and related electronics? So with, like, within this, like, clay and carbonate um, sediment, uh, there's these nodules of um, metals that can form. And these nodules are what um, mining uh, looks for. Um, not the sediments itself, but what the sediments can contain within themselves. Okay, nodules. So the minerals are embedded in these nodules, and this mining is is able to pull those minerals out. And um, well, Brittany, earlier you mentioned uh, there's just a lot of unknowns here with regard to what these risks are. So it sounds like there is definitely a need for perhaps more research into the impacts of deep sea mining. More research is a path, but there also could just be the acceptance that this is just not a path that we take. And I think that's the, if we we step back and ask, like, is this the realm that we need to start disrupting and damaging is the deep ocean? And the question, like, the answer to that question is no. And so, you know, yes, we could do more research and these exploratory things, but even in the research itself, you don't know what impact that's going to have, right? Like, we want to shine light in an area that doesn't have light to see what is down there. Is that impacting the creatures in some sort of way? 
you know, we want to send um, sound waves down there, even in, in ways that are, like, explosive, that are, like, dropping bombs that can harm and kill animals that are down there. So it's a question is, like, yes, should we do more research? The answer is, yeah, you should have more research before you make this decision. But then the 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 other question is, maybe we should just, should we even do this? Should we even go there? Unless, and if the answer is no, which... In my opinion, I think it should be no. Then, then what's the alternative? And the alternative is that we already have mined so many minerals that we can be way more creative, use our, our innovation to go through what we already have on our earth that are in our landfills and mine the junk rather than disrupting an ecosystem that may have irreversible effects on our on our planet. So you're suggesting recycling might be a better alternative uh, than going down and doing this deep sea mining. Yes, I think it's it, it's not like we're like we're smart enough to to be able to figure out how to reuse so many things that we've already created, you know. And I think that that is a path that we sh- that should be investigated further. And if you can put money and resources into that, then that would be a pathway that's part of a circular economy rather than this continuous extractive one. Well, Brittany, also tell us more about uh, your people and the connection there to the ocean, because I know there's there's deep cultural significance there with these oceans, and you're concerned about that as well uh, in terms of how that could ultimately impact your people uh, who rely on the ocean, not just for culture, but also for for much of their subsistence lifestyle. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And that's something that, you know, so we're from, I'm from Hawaii, Noah's from uh, Rapa Nui. And, you know, if you look at this on the globe, you're like, how could those two be connected? And we're connected because our continent is the ocean. And so we are Pacific people where the waterways is the ways in which we, we travel, the ways in which we practice our cultural connections. Every single one of our Pacific Island nations, our origin stories about where did our ancestors come from, where do we go when we transition, have to do with the ocean. And so protecting the entire ocean, not just the ones around the coast, is a way of protecting our culture as well. And it's, and it's in reverence to our ancestors that are like in the deep ocean. So in, in our stories in Hawaii, it's like that's, that's where things start. It starts in the darkness and in the deep sea. And I'd love for Noah to answer from Rapa Nui because we have connections, but also differences in our in our origin stories. But the the ocean is that that connector piece between us. Mm-hmm. Noah, now you are Rapa Nui, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's Easter Island. It, it's known by Easter as Easter Island to to non Pacific Islander people. And just about how far, just in miles, and I understand it's beautiful how Brittany explains it. Uh, to you folks, it, it's all one continent, even though perhaps it's all part of the water. But how many miles apart are like is like Honolulu from from Rapa Nui? I believe it's um, around four thousand miles. I'll have to double check on that, but um, I believe it's like four thousand miles from Rapa Nui. Four thousand miles. That's amazing. Wow. Uh, and for your people there, Rapa Nui people, uh, do you share much of these same ideologies and beliefs that Brittany is sharing today about the ocean and the culture? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so as, as Brittany was saying, you know, the origin of life and 
um, in in our you know oral tradition and just as well as as in the Hawaiian tradition you know um, comes from the deep parts of the ocean but in addition to that and um, I don't know what what uh, how it is here in Hawaii with their oral tradition but in our oral tradition too um, the deep ocean is also where uh, our souls go um, after we pass away so uh, it's not only in our connection that we have today you know as living beings but it's also our connection uh, to the spiritual world. So a huge issue here uh, is, uh, you know, there's these environmental concerns, cultural concerns over disruption there at, at the bottom of the ocean floor. But of course, uh, you have a huge, huge uh, industry there with regard to mining for these types of minerals and these metals that are used in such high demand in, in a number of different applications uh, today. And we're going to talk more about that, what those demands are, what those needs are, and uh, possibly what are some other solutions, what are some alternatives. Brittany mentioned earlier recycling many of these materials that are already uh, out there, they're available, as opposed to mining. We're going to explore this in a lot more depth and a lot more detail, and we definitely encourage you, our listener, to join us in this conversation. If you know anything about deep-sea mining or just any mining issues in general, perhaps you have mining in your tribal community, please give us a call, share with us what your responses are, what your experiences are with regard to mining and how it can impact uh, native lands. The number to call, 1-800-996-2848. Once again, call us at 1-800-99-NATIVE if you've got anything to add to our conversation. We're talking about mining uh, the ocean floor today here on Native America Calling. South Dakota is among states proposing new public school lessons that tribes and others say fall short of teaching history and culture of indigenous people. We'll hear what Native education experts say needs to be done coming up on the next Native America Calling. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're talking about deep sea mining today. Mining companies want to open the sea floor for extraction of minerals. Conservationists and indigenous groups are against it. Join the conversation. How is your native culture tied to the ocean? Do you think mining under the sea is both necessary and safe? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our guests on today's show are Dr. Brittany Kamai. She's an astrophysicist, a voyager, and ocean advocate. She's in Honolulu. And also in Honolulu, we have Noah Paoa, and he is a Ph.D. candidate focusing on sea level rise 
at the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology. And Noah, I'd like to go back to you now. And uh, we had a really good uh discussion before break regarding some of these risks uh, that are associated with mining at the seabed there and extraction of some of these minerals. And I wanted to ask you, um, do you think deep sea mining is more of a problem when it comes to extracting these types of minerals than mining on land? Because many of these same minerals can be extracted from land-based mines as well. Right. Um, In all honesty, I am no deep sea mining expert, but um, I share many of the thoughts that uh, Brittany was sharing, and it's mainly that we don't know what the consequences are going to be. Um, okay. The mining can take place, you know, the, the one that we're referring to, the one that at, at 200 meters or so uh, of depth is usually dredging, um, and that's, that can shake off a lot of uh, the sediments down there, right? All of, trying to get all of these nodules within the sediments, right? Can shake all of these uh, sediments, uh, which can create, you know, can pollute uh, the sediments themselves, can pollute the the ecosystems, you know, and affect all, for example, filter feeder animals, you know, and and that these are just consequences that I can think of off the top of my head right now. You know, there is, I I presume, a multitude of consequences that we haven't looked into, and. I mean, the deep the deep ocean is an area that is um, very little known of. So um, let's start with that. You know, what is down there? Okay. Well, I've heard before that in some ways scientists know more about outer space than they do about uh, the ocean depth. So certainly, certainly an interesting topic today that we're talking about here on Native America Kong. Let's go to the phones right now where we have Melanie who is listening in Anchorage, Alaska on KNBA. Good morning, Melanie. Good morning. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for calling in. What's on your mind? Well, uh, not much on Melanie's mind, at least not yet, folks. Uh, Brittany, I'd like to go back to you. Hopefully we can get Melanie back on the line here. But I want to ask you a little bit more uh, about some of these risks in terms of what can happen potentially with these machines that go way down to about 200 meters in depth and, and start dredging for these minerals and such? What else do we know about some of these potential risks that, that could occur? Before they get down there, you, they need to evaluate how deep you need to bring an instrument. And so to make that evaluation, you're going to the the best way to explore in the water is to is to measure it with a seismic wave, and so when I when I mentioned like dropping bombs, that's what happens is you're generating a sound that's really really loud. That wave is propagating out, and you're figuring out what the what the topology is of the area that you want to go to. Just that alone is really really disruptive to marine life. Uh, it it's like the most deafening sound that whales could hear, um, dolphins, any of the animals that are that we know of, or anything that could hear <laughs> or sense. And it's not even just hearing with your ears. It's like, you know, we've all been at really loud concerts where you feel it in your body, right? So so just before we even go down, you're gonna you're gonna explode you're gonna set off these huge bomb concerts that already is gonna harm animals and change your migration patterns, right? And, or, or kill them. We've seen whales that have been killed just from seismic studies. 
So before you bring your machines down there, then you, you do that, and it's already disruptive in itself. Then you bring the instruments down there, and as Noah said, it's, you know, oftentimes you're thinking like, oh, I'm just working in this one area, but every action that you have has a way bigger ripple effect, right? We know that there's so many animals down there that are huge contributors to carbon sequestration. So, like, a lot of times they're like, oh, yes, the, the green, like, we need to plant more trees. Like, that's, like, getting rid of CO2. But really our ocean does that with some of our larger animals. When they pass away, then they, are, they eat up the carbon and then bring it down to the, the seabed. So there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces of this of this bigger cycle that we have on our earth of regulating our temperature, how that how that is impacted by CO two, who's taking it away, and what happens when we impact their lives and to the point where maybe they're not having new babies and then all of this. So it's just from like a weather standpoint, there's a runaway effect, not only from like what happens to like the the marine life and and everything that they impact. So that was my longer answer. Like, okay, okay. So, so the ripple effects here, just, just one little disruption can create more disruptions further down the line and just continue to just create all of this chaos in the ecosystem as you describe it. Let's go ahead and go back to the phones. Uh, we have Melanie again. She's listening in Anchorage, Alaska on KNBA. Hello, Melanie. Hi, I'm really sorry I dropped before. I just really quickly wanted to mention, and I think it's it's very closely tied to the last caller's comment, um, just simply dragging the ocean bottom releases a lot of greenhouse gases. So I think that's a really important consideration. And then also um, disrupting coral beds, whether they're ancient or younger coral beds, that's something else that really impacts the uh, ocean, the pH, or not the pH, but, well, yes, actually it is the pH, um, not having that, uh, you know, the coral reefs and that calcium to buffer uh, warming oceans um, would be another uh, contributing factor to ocean acidification. Uh, That's all I have. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, thank you, Melanie. We sure do appreciate that call from Anchorage, Alaska, and one of our partnering stations there, KNBA. And Brittany, I want to ask you, because about how close are we here? Because this is this is just a proposal at this point. This is not actually occurring. Uh, how close are we to deep sea mining? And is it happening anywhere in the world right now? Um, the, the anywhere? Is a, I'm not sure um, the answer to that question, but the closeness and the urgency is actually like we're right on the footsteps of, or like the, I don't know the best analogy, but we're right there. Um, we the issue is that there's been companies who um, are are trying to get their bids in to um, the United Nations level governing body, which is the International Seabed Authority, about whether or not they can go and um, start to pursue their exploratory um, surveys. And so there's, there are, um, you know, uh, Noah and I are coming from two of the Pacific Island nations, but there are some within the Pacific, um, Nauru, Tonga, um, and I can't remember the third one. There are three of them who are in favor of deep sea mining because of the economic impact on their nation. And so um, they've actually worked with one of the companies to say, yes, go ahead and start mining and, and pushing 
putting the pressure on the international seabed authority to start doing that um, by July of 2013. So, like, to get their contracts in. And there's okay. kind of 2023. This... You mean by July of this year? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, <I> missed a <laughs> decade. No worries. Yes, no like worries. July of this year. Um, so, getting the the con. There's this pressure on the ISA to say yes to these contracts by by July. And so there are many other countries within the Pacific Island nations that are pushing against it. There are other ones um, within the world who are, who are saying, no, we, we don't have enough information uh, to start doing this. But there's that's where the pressure is, is we're really, really close to it. And so there was just a meeting that ended in March 2023, the year that we're in right now, mm-hmm. um, where the ISA, um, we're still at a standstill about whether or not um, this contract kind of fits in a in a in a in a loophole um, around international law of the sea. So it's it's knocking on our door. That's the analogy I'm looking for okay. um, right now. Yes. And what else do we know about these companies that that are urging uh, a start to this deep sea mining? Are they companies that have been involved in other types of mining around the world, or? Uh, well-known companies that, that many of our listeners might be familiar with? Um, I, they're all, all of the above. They're everything from um, startups to, uh, I'm blanking on the, I didn't have enough coffee before that question, <laughs> um, to, to pull up those names out of the back of my head. But, um, yeah, they're, they're companies that um, already know what they're doing, um, who've, who've done oil dredge, oil uh, drilling as well. So, um, yeah, it's a great question and, and something for, for following up. Okay. Now, yeah. our, our caller, Melanie, up in Alaska, she mentioned the disruption to the coral leaves. And uh, do you know, I mean, is there a way to, to do any of this mining in a way that would be less disruptive to the coral reefs that Melanie mentioned? <laughs> that is a great question. Maybe Noah would know. I, I, I don't think so like yeah okay yeah Noah what what is your thought on that any way to to cause a little bit less disruption maybe limit the amount of damage that could potentially be caused by the deep sea mining and its impact on the coral beds and and some of these other greenhouse gases that are at risk yeah I'm unsure of the viability of 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 deep sea mining not affecting uh, the coral the coral reefs as I said you know um my idea was that, like, all of these sediments are going to be um, uh, thrown up into the ocean um, will affect filter feeders, and corals are filter feeders. So they will be directly impacted by the plumes um, that the collection of these nodules will, will cause. Okay. Uh, and Noah, so 200 meters down, you know, that's well over 600 feet. And of course, you know, there's, there's places in the ocean that are miles deep, but, but even at 600 feet, I mean, is there any way that somebody could just say, well, look, this is happening so low below the, the, the surface of the ocean. Uh, it's so down, so deep down that, uh, we really don't have to, to, to be concerned about it quite so much that it's not as big a risk. What's your response to anybody who has that question? Well, in reality, 200 meters below sea level is really not that far down. Mm-hmm. Um, the ocean, the average depth of the ocean is around uh, 12,000 feet. 
So 600 feet is nothing in the uh, in the ocean. And as as Brittany was saying, you know, any disruption uh, to one part of the chain um, will affect uh, the whole rest of the chain. You know, like if we think about uh, the coral reefs, you know, they uh, produce the, the the productivity in the coral reefs um, feeds other fish, and then the bigger fish bigger fish eat all on uh, all of the smaller fish. Um, uh, plankton feeds uh, the whales, you know, and and so there's this whole network of uh, organisms uh, in the ocean that you know, if again, if one part of the chain uh, is affected, then the rest of the chain will will also suffer. Got it, got it, uh, Brittany. Back to you, and um, you know, going back to this idea of research, and and I know you know you're really adamant about just stopping this and just not even pursuing it in any more detail. But uh, what could be done though in in terms of getting that research uh, and getting more information? Because again, it just sounds like there are so many unknowns here. And uh, I also am curious to know the role of indigenous scientists such as yourself and NOAA. Um, any opportunities for folks like you to contribute to this type of research? Mm, yeah, so those are two big questions. And so I think the thing is, I think if we do a, a really in-depth assessment on the impact of land-based mining from like a holistic picture, we start there and have that body of research, right, to to really start to say, like, what did we know before we started mining, and then after, what impact was, was beyond our questions we were asking, that should show, like, our level of ignorance on, on what we do and how we impact a place, right? So I think, like, just those types of studies should, should be done. I think that a, a more it's like there's just so many questions to ask about our relationship to the ocean that really need to need to happen right like what what is the ocean like what is in there like who's there mm-hmm. and how to do those studies like that you know there are it's funny like you you brought up like oh we know more about space than we do about our ocean but part of what that is is like how much have we mapped and understood of the ocean itself versus like how much have we mapped um the the universe, right? Like we can, we map out the universe and we can say like, okay, there's this many galaxies, there's this many stars and planets and roughly we can see this. And we don't have, we're like somewhere around like 30% of that um, knowledge about the coverage of our, of our ocean. So if we're that limited and just covering it, just not like know what's under there, then, then we're nowhere near understanding like our impact on each of the different um pieces that are in there. So I think those two things of just like spending more time understanding the ocean and and supporting the research areas of marine scientists and oceanographers who are doing that, that that, that in itself is going to be the types of research that we need to go after. And, and then, the, uh, yes. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue. And so then the second question about where indigenous scientists play in this role is that we are able to see in two worlds, right? So then We've trained in the academy of what kind of questions and and what is the 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 goals and the interest of the academic world that comes from a European Western based lens, right? And like 
what is how do we move forward in that way and we're also coming from a, a culture and an understanding that is indigenous right and the connectivity of it so indigenous scientists have a, the ability to have this two-eyed seeing like the seeing from the western world and the seeing from our indigenous world and i think that what's so powerful about having people in this role is being able to translate and make space for more of that ancestral knowledge to help guide the questions and guide the decision making because there's certain things that just would not happen of just this one-way extractive nature that comes out of the western world and even like scientific questioning that doesn't happen in the indigenous world it's very circular it's like okay what are we giving what are we taking how are we putting back how are we taking care and that that can if we start to enhance the way we do science with that mindset then that can really change where we're going right like these questions of like oh how do we Brittany how do we I'm sorry we're, we're gonna have to take another break but uh we'll talk more right after this short break The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. Thank you for listening. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on deep sea mining today and talking with some indigenous people who oppose it. And there's still time to join our conversation. Do you think mining for metals to produce batteries that power clean energy technologies is worth the trade-off? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line now in Honolulu is Brittany Kamai. And Brittany, before break, you were talking about the need to promote more indigenous knowledge uh, with regard to some of these scientific endeavors we're talking about today, specifically research there on the ocean floor and the impacts of deep-sea mining. What needs to happen to, to make... Uh, the science is more inclusive of indigenous knowledge. <laughs> oh, you're asking the deep question. <laughs> I mean, it is deep sea mining, so we might as well we yeah. deeply mine our, our minds. You know, I think there's a lot. It's, you know, this question of inclusivity, you know, it has to, people need to reflect on themselves and their participation in the system we're in, right? And the reason that we get into positions where people are excluded is because behaviors and thoughts and words and actions of people in the space are pushing people out from comments that are incredibly dismissive, racist, unhealthy, to the way people think. And so that is, if we're going to talk about inclusivity, we have to talk about reflecting on ourselves and our own actions. And I'm talking about academics who are currently in this space, like people who are writing the books and all of that. Um, but I'd love to hear what Noah thinks about these questions, too, because um, I could definitely talk for like the next 10 hours about this. <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's bring Noah back in. And Noah, I also want to ask you, I mean, earlier we heard Brittany mention that uh, we know so little about the ocean floor, like 30 percent of the, the ocean uh, has really been charted. And why 
has that research not been done? Why is it that we know so little about these oceans for which our planet is so, so dependent? Noah, are you there? Well, Brittany, I'd like sorry, to... Sorry, I was on mute. There was a lot of, uh, okay. there was a lot of noise around me. So oh, I'm sorry. No, no worries, no worries. Yeah, I just wanted um, to get your thoughts there. Right. So I believe um, that the answer to that question relies on uh, the technology that we have available to actually do that. Um, as, <clears throat> as Brittany was saying, uh, the only way that we have uh, as of right now to know how deep and to map and the topology of the ocean bottom is with sound. Um, so um, echo sounders are the only way that, uh, that, we, that we have to map the ocean bottom. And I believe that uh, that is why we know so little, is that the, the, a, a new technology, like a breakthrough technology, uh, that would allow us to map the ocean bottom is uh, what hasn't happened. Uh, unlike what has happened for, uh, for example, for uh, the, um, looking into the universe or um, mapping um, the land with a very high resolution. Um, you know, drones and, and, and LIDAR, you know, um, using lasers on, on the surface of the Earth um, are things that, that you cannot do on, uh, in the ocean. Um, so I believe that that, that breakthrough technology hasn't been developed. Um, and it might be because we're not putting a lot of focus on studying the ocean. Mm-hmm. Well, so often uh, people don't really start paying attention to these types of issues until they see an opportunity, like what's happening now with this deep sea mining and the need for these minerals. So, so often that's what drives these types of these types of interests. And well, Noah, tell us a little bit more about the research that you do there uh, in the ocean, and what led you into this kind of work. Right. So, well, my connection to the ocean as a Rapa Nui native is what uh, led me to want to study the ocean and uh, led me to want to get a, you know, a degree uh, that will help me go back to my community and give back to the community, you know, that raised me. Um, so this, the, this, the research that I do uh, is in regard to uh, sea level rise. I map coastal areas that are vulnerable to flooding due to sea level rise um, under the assumptions that in the following years, you know, sea level will continue to rise like we have seen in the past few decades. Uh, So if the sea level continues to rise, um, what are the areas that will be affected? Um, And that is what I do. I map the areas that are vulnerable um, from a probabilistic standpoint. Now, do you see a potential risk with deep sea mining impacting these uh, rises in sea level that you're currently mapping in coastal areas? So, the way that I think sea mining can affect uh, sea level is by uh, affecting the root of the problem, which is climate change. Right? Climate change is what drives uh, sea level rise. So, if deep sea mining is going to have a a negative consequence or add-on to uh, the negative um, consequences that will affect um, climate change, uh, then yes, it might, not ha- it might not have a direct connection to sea level rise, but in, in some way um, will have 
uh, or will add on to the problem of sea level rise. Noah, what would you like to see these companies that are currently proposing this deep sea mining there on the ocean floor, what would you like to see them do going forward that could uh, in any way uh, appease uh, some of these concerns you have or just uh, make you a little bit more confident that, uh, that these, uh, these efforts are going to be carried out in a way that's at least partially uh, responsible with regard to climate change and these other issues we're talking about today? Definitely more research on what the um, environmental consequences are going to be. Uh, that is a no-brainer. That needs, to, that needs to happen before we get into any sort of, of, of mining. Um, but uh, in addition to that, I think that uh, the the root of this problem is um, the consumerism mindset that um, us as world population have. You know, like Brittany mentioned, you know, we could uh, recycle many of the things that we have already made, reuse many of the things that we have already made. Uh, you know, and those are two of the important R's. You know, there's three important R's. I will, I will have to add uh, one more of the R's, which is to... <clears throat> Uh, to reduce reduce consumption, right? All these companies are uh, being driven by uh, the consumerism mindset, right? They are going to bring all these products, and then we will have to use them, right? And we will have to buy them. So um, uh, I understand that going towards uh, a less carbon emission um, is the way to go, but also reducing our consumption of all of many things that might be unnecessary or not essential. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it has to be like a population uh, mindset reset or mindset change, you know? Okay. Well, yeah, because it's, you know, that's always the issue, right? Like reduce uh, consumption, you know, take away some of that demand. But especially here in the United States, I mean, we are such a consumer-driven society and people want these things, right? They all want you know, yeah. vehicles and, and, and electronic devices. So, I mean, any thought in terms of, I mean, like you mentioned, like a real population shift. I mean, have you thought about like what it would really take to really make a, a real change in terms of our consumer mindset, specifically in the United States? Um, the thing that comes to mind right now, you know, like a lot of the... A lot of the, the, the greatest problems that we have um, that we bring as consumers into this climate change problem, you know, will be, for example, the use of cars. Mm -hmm. The use of cars put up carbon emissions. And now that we're trying to switch uh, on to um, battery-driven cars, right, electricity-driven cars, potentially the solution will be to... Uh, put the money into better the public transportation systems and have this shift of the population using public transportation instead of every single person having a car, you know. So if we take away, you know, 200,000 cars because 200,000 people are using uh, public transportation, uh, I believe that that will reduce a lot of uh, the requirements for all of these uh, rare, rare minerals, um, and reduce the amount of 
emissions that we're putting out. Okay. And Noah, what other pressing issues do we need to concern ourselves with regard to the oceans, especially there in Hawaii and other parts of the Pacific? Um, well, climate change, you know, warming of the ocean, ocean acidification, and also um, overfishing, I think, are the uh, three big uh, issues that we're seeing today um, regarding the ocean. Brittany, would you have any other issues to add to that? Noah mentions uh, warming waters, overfishing, and uh, rising acid levels as well. Anything else we need to concern ourselves with? Yeah, I think I want to expand on the, the warming waters is that we are uh, the front lines of experiencing exactly what's happening with climate change, right? Like, we are getting stronger storms that are coming through, that are flooding our islands. Some of our islands, Vanuatu, they can see the direct path of a few months ago where they were able to stand on a part of their land but can't anymore because of sea level rise. So that's why work like that NOAA's doing that impact our communities is so significant. And there's, I, I wish people would hear our voices of how there needs to be accountability on this demand because they're not seeing that it's we're losing our ancestral homes because of all of this consumerist drive, right? And so just even hearing about the Pacific and hearing that that's our home and our cultural connections and not some vast emptiness that you throw trash in and take out what you want from it is something that is important and needs to be protected, I think is what I would add. All right. And Brittany, so what next here? I mean, for indigenous people such as yourself who are watching this deep sea mining issue, uh, when are these decisions ultimately going to be made? And, and do you feel that there's any chance that the regulatory body will delay permits because of opposition by indigenous groups such as you and, and NOAA and what you're proposing? Oh, absolutely. I think that having this discussion is really important to know that it's something we need to pay attention to. So even at the state level, like I know in Hawaii, um, we have two bills that are going through about uh, protecting deep sea mining. You know, so it's anyone who's listening, you're going to have an opportunity to bring it up and just keep bringing it up <laughs> and, and saying, like, what are we doing to protect the deep? Like I was at, I luckily was at the White House and brought it up with our um, chief, chief executive officers about how are we as the country of the United States going to protect the deep, right? And that's that's. Those are the seeds that we need to have in conversations, and people can go further and follow organizations uh, who are, are constantly giving updates about what the latest things are happening, going to demonstrations like the ones that happened in Jamaica. Um, these are all things that people can do to stay part of the conversation and, and not let it just, oopsies, it happened. Be there and be a voice and and put your name down on any of the petitions and talk to your people about how we need to not do this. Brittany, we are going to have to wrap up the show here in a couple of minutes, but tell us more about your Surfrider Foundation and uh, the awareness that you folks are working on. Uh, yes, so uh, Surfrider is an ocean conservation organization um, designed to protect the ocean waves and beaches for all people. And so we are definitely one of the voices that are saying no to uh, offshore drilling, deep sea mining, and these things that impact our oceans. So, and you have some yeah. voyaging canoe trips planned? Oh, 
Oh, that's um, so that's in a separate organization, um, the Polynesian Voyaging Society, and that's something that both Noah and I are part of. So there's a humongous voyage that we're starting right now. Um, our voyaging canoes, Hokulea and Hikianalia, are going to travel around the entire Pacific Ocean. Um, it'll be a four-year voyage uh, starting in Alaska, going all the way around. And so that's going to be a very powerful um, voyage that's going to bring us all together to be people who are voyaging for the Earth. So every single one of us have an opportunity to take care of our planet. And so that's what the intention of our, our voyage is, is to bring us all together and, and especially protecting the Pacific Ocean. So yeah, check us out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. And Noah, yeah. do, you, do you plan to, to travel with these voyagers as well on these canoes? Um, I'm hopeful. <laughs> it's, um, it is um, hard in the sense of like is um it's not an easy task to be on the canoe you know mm -hmm. you need to be trained you need to be knowledgeable of what you're doing so that you put so that you are safe but you're also not putting others in danger so that you are helping uh, for the safety of everyone um so hopefully being part of the of training of the crew uh to hopefully make one of the legs you know um, we're going to need a lot of crew members um, because it's a long trip and not everyone can stay, you know, for four years on the canoe. Um, uh, we're going to need a lot of crew members and hopefully I can become uh, a crew member for um, some part of the journey. Well, four years uh, in a canoe like that, voyaging all over the globe, uh, certainly exciting. But yeah, definitely, I can just imagine the types of challenges uh, that that type of endeavor presents. So uh, lots of lots of uh, good well wishes to you folks uh, in all of these endeavors moving forward. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so uh, we're going to have to wrap up this conversation today. I want to thank both of our guests, Dr. Brittany Kamai and Noah Paoa, for what's been a really invigorating conversation there on uh, the challenges and the risks of deep sea mining there uh, in the Pacific waters. Join us again tomorrow for a discussion with Native educators in South Dakota about social studies standards that involve teaching about indigenous people in the state. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 27th, 28th, and 29th on the Powwow grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company, a small batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetzon Reservation. Information and online ordering at spiritmountainroasting.com slash news. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amarin's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at amarind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. 
Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.